hey, we get to be out of the Old Testament. Woo! <laughs> we have been in Samuel for a while. Really excited to be in 1 Corinthians. So if you your Bible, that's where we're going to be. And Corinth is a really interesting spot just geographically. And it's, it's kind of important to know that it's on the thinnest part of a peninsula or a isthmus. It's pronounced something along those lines. I think you're supposed to say it with a lisp, isthmus. So it's on an isthmus. And so what, what that would look like is this. There was a major points of trade on either side of this peninsula. And so if they wanted to trade... They had two choices. They could, well, I guess they had three. They could do it by foot. The other two were this. If you were on boat, you could go all the way around the peninsula, which is upwards of 200 to 240 miles, or you could pull up to Corinth, unload your boat, travel only four and a half miles, reload a second boat, and then take that to your next destination. So it made Corinth just this massive city for trade. If you wanted to make a name for yourself, if you wanted to break away from your old name and start new, if you wanted to hit it big, if you had all these big aspirations for prosperity, Corinth was the place. Corinth was a city that had been sacked and then rebuilt by Rome. And so its inhabitants were pridefully Roman individuals that had a lot of influence in Greek culture. So all through Corinth were these different temples, different gods. And most notably of Corinth, if you're familiar with it or have heard stories about it, is they had a particular temple that, according to legend, had upward of a thousand prostitutes that would work on any given day. So happening spot for sailors, right? This was, hey, we can go the 200 miles around or we can go to the place of utter debauchery. Where do you guys want to go? Sailors choose debauchery. So Corinth was just moving. So it's in this space that Paul decides, I need to go there. All these people are traveling through here. If I, I want to talk about Jesus, let's go talk about Jesus there. And so just briefly, he gets there in Acts chapter 18. You see the, the start of this, this church. So Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has died. Jesus has been risen back to life and is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And in 20 years after that, 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is this text right here in Acts 18, which has a really funny line, which is why I'm really excited to read it. it. says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So there's Paul. Paul is, I'm going to be wherever people are meeting, and I'm going to be trying to persuade them and reason with them that Jesus is king, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. And I always love that about Paul, that he reasons with them. It's not feelings. It's not, it, it is, I, this makes sense. Jesus is the Messiah. It lines up with scripture. It lines up with what we know about the world. He reasons with people. And here comes the funny part. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is a funny response to me that Paul would say that. Hey, I'm done. Your blood's on your own head. I'm innocent. So this is when he really becomes, he's the pastor of the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together as his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So this is the church has started. And it's really cool that the leader of the synagogue, he becomes a believer and, and he turns to Jesus. Well, then Paul leaves and go and does a bunch of other missionary work. And five years later, he gets word that, hey, there's some stuff going on in Corinth. And not like a little bit of stuff, there's a lot of stuff. And partly it's because it's such a big church with people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and histories and ways of looking at life, there becomes this mass of issues. And so Paul is gonna address all of these issues. So it's, it's his longest letter because there's a lot of issues that we need to talk about and cover. And so here are the issues. As we're going through 1 Corinthians, the first four chapters are gonna be devoted to the divisions that are in the church. That the church has divided over different teachers and over things that Paul is like, Jesus is not divided. Your goal is to love each other, not divide over everything. So the first four chapters is divisions. Chapter seven through five is gonna talk about sexual immorality, which was, would be a huge thing in Greek and Roman culture. Christians were known to be shocking and countercultural for two things. They gave freely to the poor, which even today is shocking, and they were uh, sexually pure people. They believed that sex belonged in marriage and marriage alone and not outside of that. And to the Romans in particular, that's a shocker because they believed, uh, I, I mean, like it's hard to say that they were more intense than we were when they viewed sexuality, but it's true. Like ours is vanilla compared to them, even the worst of ours. And they believed that if sex is like an appetite, if you're hungry, you should eat. And in Roman culture, it's only the Roman man who was really a citizen or a human being. Everything else was a second-class citizen, didn't get a say. So wild perspective on life that Paul is going to have to battle against and say, no, that's not what we do, that we're called to be sanctified in Jesus and we're called to love other people as image bearers of God, that every person has dignity, every person deserves respect, and every person gets to be looked at as a child of God. Ver chapters eight through nine, has to deal with meat sacrifice to idols. And how that pertains for us is doing things that outsiders would look at and causing them to, st to stumble. Love other people more than the freedoms that have been given to you by the grace of Jesus is what he's gonna try to communicate and convey. And then chapters 11 through 14 is gonna discuss, there's some issues with corporate worship. Some people have been getting drunk off communion. You know, if you come to church and it's the 9 a.m. service and you say, hit me with another one, you have a problem. Paul's going to address some of that. Paul's going to address some, there's a, a lot of chaos that happens in this culture, happens in this church because of all the different cultures. And he's going to say, this is what orderly worship in the church looks like. And that'll be addressed in chapters 11 through 14. And then in chapters 15 through 16, once all the problems are dealt with, there's been some doctrinal issues about the resurrection. 
Some of the Greeks really struggled with the idea of the resurrection, and so they're moving towards denying it, and Paul is saying, absolutely not. Resurrection is core to our future hope. So that's what we're looking at. It's all about love, loving each other, loving God, loving one another, and it is ultimately about seeing every part of life through the gospel. That's what we're going to be looking over this next 16 weeks plus Thanksgiving, plus Christmas. So 18 weeks, we're going to be talking about every aspect of life being viewed through the gospel. So let's go to 1 Corinthians and get moving through it. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Did you, met, did you hear a few key words? If you look at the beginning, you have Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse two, you have to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. At the end of that verse, our Lord Christ Jesus. Verse three, and the Lord Christ Jesus, chapter in verse four, the Lord Jesus Christ. In nine verses, Paul is going to mention Jesus by name eight times. And if you include the time that he just says Christ, it's nine times for nine verses. If you sit down with Paul at a table for breakfast, what are you guaranteed to talk about? It, it's gonna be Jesus. That's his starting point. That's his overflowing with joy. You ever have this hobby that you get just interested in and just starts to consume you and, and it's gotta be every, you have to bring it up. Like your buddies have to know and your friends have to know. It just becomes so important to you. For Paul, it's we need to restart a little bit. We need to reclaim the joy of our salvation, take a step back and remember it's all about Jesus. Are there things in the church that can, you can decide to be upset over and possibly even divide over and it's not necessarily bad? Sure. But if your view starts at Jesus, if you are saying, okay, let's just get Jesus back, everyone can agree on Jesus. If you're a Christian, everyone should be able to agree on Jesus. So he's saying, let's take a step back. The thing that's gonna unify us, the thing that we can all restart on is Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? Who has Jesus called you to be? For some people, when you sit down, it's gonna be stocks, it's gonna be the economy, it's gonna be fishing. The passions, are the things that are in our mind, that's what we're really gonna talk about. If you sit down with Paul, it's gonna be Jesus. So here's what he says about Jesus. He's thankful to God because of the grace that was given to us in Jesus. You're saved by grace. When you get to heaven, what is 
I was having a conversation with this young man this morning, and he goes, when I get to heaven, and when, for some reason he said Paul, but in most of our thinking, it's usually Peter at the gates guarding it, right? Peter or Paul, when he says, hey, what, what did you do to get into here? He goes, I just don't know what I'm gonna say. And I go, the fact that you're thinking about that tells me you fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. If you ever answer the question, are you a Christian with, well, I'm trying, or I'm doing my best, you fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. And one of my favorite illustrations is this. I don't think it'll ever be topped. There was a pastor sharing that there was a man who had lived his life in absolute debauchery, done everything wrong, never went to church, had never seen scripture his entire life, probably never even heard scripture, had issues with every relationship that he'd ever had, was a total thief and got caught stealing in Rome and was then going to be crucified for it. And crucifixion was this terrible, monstrous, tortureful way to die. And it was to point out to everyone, you do not do what this man did. You do not follow this man or you will end up like this man. And all the pictures we have, the, the crosses being way up high, that's not true. They would be low so you could walk up to their face and spit at them and yell at them and make fun of them and mock them. That was the actual crucifixion scenario. And so this pastor tells the story of there's a man who's being crucified. And at some point he looks over and he sees there's three crosses, the man in the middle, and he says to them, will you remember me when you get into your kingdom? And the man in the middle cross says, today, surely you'll be with me in paradise. So that man dies. That man goes to heaven. And he's standing at the gates and the angel's there and he goes, we weren't expecting anyone, anyone right now. What, what's your name? Gets his name. What church did you go to? Well, okay. Well, hold on. What, can you tell me some of your core theology? Can you tell me what propitiation means? Can you tell me the difference between justification and sanctification? Can you tell me how old the earth is? Can you tell me if you believe in a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture? Can you believe, can you tell, and just, what are you doing here? And his response was, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what gets you into heaven. The man on the middle cross said you could come. Not that you did anything right, not that you were smart enough, not that you were brave enough. Jesus, God never looked at me and said, I really need Jesus on my team. All right, no, sorry, Justin. <laughs> Justin is my name. Jesus is God. God never said, hey, Jesus, we really need Justin on our team. That guy, ooh, he'd kill it, don't you think? And you're sitting here today going, yeah, I know that's not true, right? No, there's nothing about me that I'm bringing something to team Jesus that's really gonna make it the Jesus plus team. No, for every single one of us, it's not that we were smart enough or brave enough or did any of the right stuff or memorized the right things. It's we are saved by grace. So that's the first thing he says about Jesus. Second, he says we're enriched in speech and knowledge. These are two areas that are actually gonna come under pretty severe criticism from Paul. Their speech and their knowledge, the things that they're talking about, the things that they claim to know about how the world works is still pretty earthly. They talk and they're super self-confident in their knowledge, which would have been the Greek way of doing life, absolutely. And they're areas that they need to grow in. And so he's saying Jesus has supplied all the resources that we need for growth. If you look at verse six, it says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not lacking anything that's needed for your growth. So what's gonna sustain you and me until the end and leave us guiltless? It's not our works, it's not our words, it's not our theology, it's not our favorite teacher, it's not our passions, it's not our hobbies or our relationships, it's Jesus. So Paul starts by saying, hey, let's just get back to Jesus. If we can start at Jesus, then we can build and have a fruitful conversation from here on out. And so then he continues at verse nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do you know that we of all people will be found guiltless? Because God is faithful that God's always reliable. He can be counted on. God is now redirecting them from themselves, from their knowledge, from their speak, from their division, from their issues. Let's focus on God. Let's retalk about Jesus. God is faithful. God's not gonna forsake you. God hasn't given up on you. Jesus still wants to use you and redeem you and walk through these issues and see this church become this amazing city on a hill for, this, for all the people who come through here. This is gonna be an amazing place for Jesus. And so when we have issues in relationships or work or social situations, where should we turn to first? Jesus. Uh, Chad will be sharing with us as pastors, there'll be times that he's at home and he'll be doing the dishes. He claims he does the dishes. I don't know. But he says he's, he's doing the dishes. And then his wife will say something. And either he or his wife will just get irritated. You ever have that moment with your spouse where you're at home and everything is fine, then all of a sudden you're just irritated with the other person. Chad says what he and his wife have started doing is they say, that's not you. They start saying that to each other. That's not you. And that gives them a second to pause. We're gonna take a break from arguing about whether or not you let the dishes soak. We're gonna take a break from arguing about how much laundry detergent is too much laundry detergent. We're gonna take a break from whatever the issue might be and say, you're better than that. I'm better than this. Let's talk to Jesus for a second first, and then we can have a conversation about how to move forward with this issue. After you talk to Jesus, do those issues ever really seem that big? No way. No, so when you and I have issues in relationships, at work, and social situations, we should do what Paul is doing right here. Let's turn to Jesus. This is Paul's starting place, and it should be ours too. And if it's not, you're just gonna miss out. You can have the best kind of talk, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but you'll spin your wheels without any traction if you don't start with Jesus. So we need to stop trying to fix our issues with our words or our knowledge, we need to get back to Jesus. If we're having a hard time at work, if we're having bad blood in a relationship with a friend or a coworker, start with Jesus. Get back to Jesus. So then verse 10, we're looking at, these are where the divisions in the church are currently at. I appeal to you brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Justin, or I follow Christ. <laughs> is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I love this verse right here, chapter 16. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. It's this moment where you and I get to see Paul's a real human being. I didn't do it except for these two. Okay, also this one house. But beyond that, I'm not sure. It's been five years. Why would that be in the, in the Bible? Because they didn't have erasers. They didn't. They didn't have backspace. This is Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit writing as Paul would write. And as a result, you and I get exactly what God wanted to have written. That it wasn't golden tablets sent down from heaven that this is what you need to write to the people of the Corinthians. God totally inspired Paul and what he should say, 100%. But you get Paul's personality and influence coming out in it. So I think that's really fun. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. I love the words of eloquent wisdom that we get in Acts 18, where we started, right? Your blood's on your own head. I'm guiltless. That's what we get from Paul's teaching moments. I think that's kind of funny. I didn't teach with words of eloquent wisdom. Actually, the one thing that's really recorded is when I got real mad. So there's quarreling and there's divisiveness. So some followed, some followed this guy named Apollos. And Apollos was this guy who came through after Paul who loved Jesus, and he was a really great orator. He was great at communicating. He probably had phenomenal jokes. He had great metaphors and phenomenal application that people could take them and go, dang, that was great. I can do something with that today. And so quickly, what happened in Corinth is if you don't like Apollos' teaching or his take on scripture more than someone else's, well, I don't know if you're really saved. Or then there were those who followed Paul or Peter, Cephas, well, so maybe Cephas came to town or maybe they heard about him and they heard his take on scripture. They heard him teach. And well, if you don't do things his way, you know, Peter really knew Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus for a long time. If you don't like his take better, well, then I don't know if you're really saved. And then you got the last group who there's always got to be that group, right? Well, I follow the Lord, right? When people are arguing, you know, okay, higher than that, whatever. And Paul is saying, there's none of that, dude. There's none of this arguing over who's taught, teaching better. It's, they're all teaching Jesus. All these are saved people who love Jesus. Stop arguing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus is not divided. Jesus isn't cut up and spread amongst these different people. There's one body that you're part of. It's all about Jesus. Why are you dividing over that? There's this really great joke. It goes like this. Once I saw this guy on a bridge and he was about to jump. And I said, don't do it. And he said, nobody loves me. And so I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes. I said, great. Are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Protestant or are you Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What franchise? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? He said, Northern conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern conservative Baptist, Great Lakes region? 
or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. So I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. Is that not what we do? You know, in the Bible, there are things that we can decide for, divide for, and die for. And too often, we'll put the things that you can decide for in the die for category, to where we say, I don't know if that person's saved. You, you've agreed with so much of the same foundational things, but there's one thing, oh, I'm done with you. And we can do that with so many trivial things that might not be trivial to you, absolutely. Whether it be the age of the earth, whether that be dinosaurs were real, whether that be the, however the rapture were, any of those things, you might go, oh, that's not a decide for. That is not even a divide for. That's a die for for me. Paul is saying, no, easy. Let's go back to it's all about Jesus. Jesus is your die for. Jesus is your die for. Everything else, there are absolutely divide for, sure. But really, too many things we put in that category, maybe they're decide for, maybe they're discussion for, maybe they're, hey, let's have a sit down conversation about it and work it out. But it's not, we can't be friends because you like that pastor more and I like this pastor more. Paul is saying, dude, that is silly. You are, you are totally squelching your ability to be an effective church and communicate Jesus well if you're saying, hey, that guy loves Jesus and he's gonna spend eternity in heaven, but he listens to some dumb people. Okay, that's not helpful. Let's not do that with each other. You have this story with Jesus where John goes out and he says, hey, these people were talking about you, Jesus, but in the wrong way, so we stopped them. And what does Jesus say? If they're not against me, they're for me. If they claim to be on team Jesus and they're talking about Jesus, they're on team Jesus. It might not be your style, that's fine. It's someone else's style and they're gonna meet them where, God's gonna meet them through those people where they are. They're gonna reach people that you're not gonna reach. And so that's okay. So these people have taken decide for topics and they've made them divide for topics. And so they're great things to have opinions and discussions on, but it doesn't affect your salvation at all. And so verses 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It was so fun for me to teach Numbers 21 on Sunday because I've always wanted to teach that. And this is that, that's the perfect picture of it. It's insanity. Think about it. For Roman people, for Roman people, the worst thing that you could talk about is crucifixion. Good Roman citizens did not talk about crucifixion. It's a bad thing. It's the worst thing they could do. And you're telling me that God was that guy we did that to? That's insanity. For the Jews, the, the picture of the snake is that's the emblem of sin and shame. The cross was the emblem of sin and shame. You're telling me that is God who saved me? Yes. So Paul addresses that. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The number one thing in Greek culture was being wise. That was their high point. 
The cross goes against their wisdom. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews would have been expecting a Messiah to come, and they knew Messiah was coming. Like, if you think about it, in the opening chapters of Matthew, you have all of these scribes who are able to pinpoint Bethlehem's where he's going to be. And so the wise men, they go and they travel and they're able to see Jesus and give gifts to him at his birth. So they were expecting a Messiah, but the Messiah they were expecting would have been someone raised probably in a kingdom with servants and with the best food, with parents of great reputation. He would have been raised in an environment where he was given the best education, where he was raised to learn all the best strategic and military ways to battle and overcome the enemy and trick your opponents. They expected Jesus to be this conquering king who would come in on a horse with an army, overthrow Rome, overthrow all of the established kingdoms of this world, and it set Israel as being the nation overall. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were wanting. That's what they believed the Old Testament was pointing towards. That's who they were hoping for. And so for the Jews to hear, know the Messiah had come, and he wasn't born in a kingdom. He was born in a manger because there was no room at Bethlehem and people were unwilling to make room for his family because their family had dishonored their family name because, well, his mom was pregnant before she was married and that's not allowed. And so everyone shunned them. So they had to give birth in, we like to paint pictures of stables. It's a cave. It's this dank, dirty cave full of animal excrement and animals and animal food. And that's the place where Jesus was born. And then he would be raised to a lowly carpenter by a lowly carpenter who could not get the jobs that other carpenters would have got. Because you're gonna hire the guy with a good reputation, not the guy that everyone talks bad about. Not the guy who did things wrong, especially not in a small, small, small town of Nazareth. So Jesus was raised super poor to the wrong parents, and then he becomes this hippie preacher and teacher who didn't have a job. He was just walking around teaching when there's a, a plant that didn't have food on it, it gets real mad at it. Jesus has a reputation among the Jews as being the guy who went to a temple and threw everything, messed everything up, threw, flipped all the tables over. And then he didn't come riding in on a steed to declare war, he came riding on a donkey to declare peace that Jesus said he wasn't gonna to come to bring judgment or destroy. He came to bring peace and reconciliation and redemption. And then Jesus never overthrew Julius Caesar. He stood before Julius Caesar. He didn't overthrow any of the Caesars. Instead, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, allowed himself to be crucified, and then he died. And so for Jewish people, they'd go, man, I'm having a hard time with that. 
because it, it wasn't lining up for them because they had all these expectations on this is who Jesus is supposed to be. This is what a king looks like. This is what a God looks like. And Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and gave my life as a ransom for many. That our idea of what kingship looks like, Jesus has flipped 100%. Our idea of what it means to be a man, our idea of what it means to be a leader, the world's pushing of what it means to have success and what Jesus tells you and me what it means to have success, to be a leader and to be a, a man is completely flipped. It's not about gaining things or making sure everyone knows how powerful and right you are. It's about serving others. It's about when you know you're the most important person in the room, you do the lowest job, like you wash everyone else's feet. That's what Jesus demonstrates for you and me, what being a man is like, what being a leader is like. For the Jews and the Greeks, it's insanity. It's foolishness. How could something, for the, the Romans in particular, you start to think about the cross then. Well, how could something as evil as the cross save? And so if you are in the spot, like I talked about earlier, if you're in the spot where you go, how are you a Christian? And your response is, well, I'm really trying. What you need to know is only on the cross did the righteous son of God die. He took on all of your evil. He took on all of your shame, all of your sin, all your bad stuff. He took all of that upon himself and what gets imparted onto you, it gets switched, is his righteousness, his goodness, his perfect way of living life. He lived a perfect life. You did not live a perfect life. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve so that you and I could have the life that Jesus deserves. Does that make sense? Do you see that reversal? That's how it's supposed to be. Jesus did things perfect. We did things terribly. And now when God looks at you and me, he sees perfect Jesus. Because Jesus has taken on all of our sin. He became sin. And on the cross, any claim that sin and death had on you and me was paid in full and you're set free. What you see in the Old Testament is you have the Israelites who are standing in front of the Red Sea. They've been released from Egypt. Pharaoh has given them up. And they're at the Red Sea and Pharaoh is coming and the people say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the wilderness. And Moses says, be patient. God is gonna do something. Then, God, then Moses goes to God and says, what, what should we do? And God says, why are you crying out to me? You need to only wait and I'll show you what's supposed to happen. Here's what you have. You have the people who are convinced they need to serve Pharaoh or they're gonna die. They freak out. You have Moses who responds correctly and you have God who gets mad at Moses. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in Exodus 14, but that's the order that plays out in just a few verses. You have the people are upset at God and Moses. Moses says, God's got it under control and God gets mad at Moses. And then God creates this path where everyone is able to cross through and be safe. That's what happened for you and me. That for you and me, we were condemned to death. That sin and death had us cornered. And Jesus did everything right. And Jesus took the blame. And then there was a path made for you and I to cross through. And now here's where you and I are. Are we at the promised land yet? No way. We're in the same situation the Israelites were on the other side of the Red Sea. Can Pharaoh get them? 
No way. But we still have this stuff in us that says serve me or die, right? We all have this stuff in us that says, well, I need to make sure everyone knows how smart I am, how brave I am, that I've got the right wisdom, that everyone knows I'm listening to the right teachers. All these things that can divide us that says serve me or die, but they have no claim over you anymore. That same thing happens for us. We have this serve me or dieness in it. It has no claim over us. You've been set free from it. On the cross, you've been given a new identity and a new family line, meaning you're not stuck in doing the same generational stuff that your parents did. That just because your parents lived a certain way and thought talking to your spouse was okay in a certain way and engaging in certain behaviors was okay, you're not stuck doing those same things. When Jesus, when you accept him as your savior, the Bible says you're able to have a renewed mind, a renewed life. You're able to be born again. You can have different hobbies, different interests, different things that you discuss and talk about, different direction of life. You don't have to raise your kids the same way you were raised. You don't have to talk to your spouse the same way that your dad talked to your mom or your mom talked to your dad. You can do things differently through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can be renewed and be made new. And so verse 26 to the end. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, which is Paul's favorite thing to write. And that's the best two words in the Bible. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let no one who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why are you saved? Is it because God looked at you and said, man, I really need to have that person on my team. Is it because God looked at you and said, man, he's really discerning, he's really wise, he's really smart, he's just fast enough? No way. You're saved, not because you brought something to the table that God was lacking, but you're saved because God chose you. God chose to shed his love upon you through Jesus. There's this text in Deuteronomy 7, 7. It's one of my favorite texts. And this is what it says. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Deuteronomy 7, 7, 7, 6 says this, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's huge, right? God chose the Israelites out, to be, out of all the people to be his treasured possessions. Well, why? Men, if you're ever sitting across from your spouse and your wife says, why do you love me? You were on dangerous ground. You'd be real careful how you answer. And the next text right here is really important how God answers because he doesn't say, well, I love you because you're smart or I love you because you're pretty 
I love you because the, the career that you've chosen has allowed us to have a lot of extra income and pursue our hobbies and go on more vacations or do more fun things. I love you because uh, you're really fit and we get to go on hikes and, and have fun together. Those are all the wrong answer because all of those things are fleeting and circumstantial and they don't last. Why does God say that he has chosen Israel and he loves Israel? It's so important. Look at it here in verse seven of Deuteronomy 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It's not because you were big or smart or strong or had the right resources or had anything, but verse eight, here's why. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers and that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of King Pharaoh of Egypt. What did God say? It's not because you were smart or pretty or able or had the right resources. I love you because I love you. I'm keeping the promise that I made. You and I get saved, not because we did anything right, because we did anything smart, but because he loves us. And by this, we know that God has loved us, that he sent his son to save us, to be the propitiation for our sins. It's nothing that we did. It's everything that Jesus did. Right before coming here, I got, this is how my day started. Let's start there. Seven o'clock this morning, I get to go meet with a young man. I'm super excited about it. And um, he wants to talk about theology and he wants to talk about doctrine and he wants to make sure that he understands the Bible well before he gets married so that he can lead his family well. I love that. So we're sitting and we're talking about it and I'm a loud talker. If I'm being honest, I don't need the microphone. All right, you remember when the power went out? Don't need the microphone. So I'm talking with this guy and this man comes and sits at the table across from me. Whatever, we're at Powderhorn. And so I'm talking with him and this man across from us gets up and he says, what you're sharing with him, I need you to share with me. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, can we get together today? And I'm like, yes. And like, is that not awesome? Like, I'm like, that is so cool. And so I give him my number and he then leaves and I finish up the conversation with this young man and all day I'm stoked, right? Super excited about it. And I finally go meet with this guy and I'm just excited about it. And in this meeting that we have, it's a little antagonistic, and it's a little aggressive, and I'm trying to figure out why. This is, what's going on? And the conversation came down to, um, I want you to sell me what you were selling that kid. I'm like, I wasn't selling anything. I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything. We were just talking about Jesus and doctrine, and he goes, um, I, I, I go, well, let's just start here. Are you a Christian? And like, that's where we were trying to get, and he told me, I'm not a Christian. And I said, well, that, it's news to me. And if I'm not, that's great to hear, because I need to evaluate. Here's how he knows I'm not a Christian, because I've got tattoos. So that disqualifies me. That's a decide for that became a divide for, possibly a die for. Here's the thing. Your tattoos aren't gonna disqualify you. I kind of look at it like maybe God looks at it the way my dad looks at it. Like, really? Well, what are they about? Well, they're all about Jesus. No, nah, it's kind of cool. Like, I think maybe it's like that. But the thing is, is my tattoos or the lack thereof isn't what's gonna get me into heaven. It's not what has gotten me accepted as a son of Jesus, son of God. What has gotten me accepted as a son of God is that I call Jesus Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. That is it. The man on the middle cross said I could come. Regardless of how I look or how I act 
or how I smell. All of those, those things don't play a part in it. You and I get to be involved now in the sanctification process, and those are things that Paul is going to be addressing for the rest of these chapters. But where he wants to start is where each and every one of us has to start. It's about Jesus. Jesus is what saves you. Jesus is what has redeemed you. Jesus is what has set you free. Jesus is what is gonna give you a new life, new opportunities, new habits, a new way to move forward. You may have been doing things wrong, and praise God, you can get those pointed out right now, and we'll start moving things and changing towards the way that God wants us to live because the Bible says we're supposed to be clay, and we allow, to be God, we allow God to be the potter to mold and shape us into the image of his son, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So Jesus, we are thankful that we get to be called not because we did the right things or we were framed from doing certain activities, but we're saved and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's given to us by grace and grace alone. And now I pray, Jesus, that you will empower us through your Holy Spirit to walk out a sanctified life the rest of this week, that we'd be seeking you better ways to talk to our spouse and talk to our kids and talk to our friends and coworkers, that we'd be empowered by your Holy Spirit to see the areas that we need to be shaped and molded and made new. And I pray that you would help us to break away from the things that continue to drag us down and leave a foothold for the enemy. Thank you for the kids who are here tonight. I pray their Bible study was fruitful and they learned a whole lot about a king who loves them and would give anything for them. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.